Hi, I'm Nico. And I'm Rashmi. And we're your hosts of Anything But, a podcast where we chat with notable people about anything but what they're notable for. Today, we are joined by the Chief Business, Economics, and Technology Correspondent for ABC News. Most notably, she is the creator and host of The Dropout Podcast and executive producer on Hulu's The Dropout. Adding to the list of accomplishments, she is a primetime Emmy nominee and Emmy award-winning journalist. Rebecca Jarvis, thank you so much for joining us. Rashmi and Nico, it's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. We're going to spend our first few minutes on the dropout, and then we'll shift into anything but that. So to kick it off, can you talk to us a little bit about what the process was like transforming your podcast into this hit Hulu series? Um, Well, it was a very collaborative process. Um, The podcast for listeners who may not be familiar tracked my research and my team's investigation into Elizabeth Holmes in her rise and fall uh, as the head and CEO of Theranos. And we spent many years working on it and collecting depositions, which were the first ever uh, shared depositions of her, as well as Elizabeth Holmes, as well as a number of other individuals who are attached to the story. And when we first set out to do the Hulu series, which was scripted and based on the Dropout podcast, you hadn't had the trial. Elizabeth Holmes had not at that point been convicted of criminal fraud. Now she's been convicted on four counts of criminal fraud. So in the early days, Um, the team and I sat down with Liz Merriweather, um, the showrunner and creator of the Hulu series, The Dropout. And she asked a lot of questions and I was really um, hardened by that because when you're a journalist, the the pursuit is of the truth. And that's where I spent so much of my time and energy. And and that is where I dedicate myself to as a journalist. And so it was really important to me that the story that Hulu's interpretation of the story, that Liz's interpretation of the story was reflective of the underground work that we had done. And in particular, um, gave credit and credibility to the people who were so instrumental in telling the truth. People like Erica Chung and Tyler Schultz, who were the whistleblowers. Uh, People like Phyllis Gardner, who was one of the early Stanford professors that turned down Elizabeth Holmes and and did not proceed uh, working with her in time. And then also the patients, the people who I spoke to, um, a woman who thought she had breast cancer, someone who thought he had diabetes because of inaccurate Theranos tests. So we sat down, we had lots of conversations with Liz Merriweather um, and spent a lot of time going over the material. She asked a lot of questions. And then what was fascinating is they were in the process of shooting a lot of this in LA and, and a, a lot of things got delayed because of COVID and the pandemic, just like the trial got delayed, the actual production um, and creation of the Hulu series got delayed. And one of the things that did, you could say it's a benefit, is that a lot of new, or at least some new things came to light in the trial. There were the text messages between Sonny Belwani, the COO and former partner of Elizabeth Holmes. And a lot of that was fodder for additional reporting and additional pieces of, of information. But it was also very sort of edifying because as, as um, in the process of the creation of the Hulu series, there had to be some imagining of the conversations that we were not privy to, the ones that were happening behind closed doors. And the text messages in many ways validated a lot of the um, 
a, a lot of the impressions that we had based on our reporting, based on what people were able to see. Um, and in some respects, the text messages were able to corroborate some of that. How did you manage to run a podcast about such a niche story? It's very specific for about three years, for a really considerable amount of time. Um, I like the question because I think it sort of speaks to the importance of following your gut and your curiosity. And I I've thought a lot about that in the context of my own life and my own career. And this was a story when I initially came across it, that um, it was pitched to me. Theranos was pitched to me. I was working with Diane Sawyer at the time on a series about exploding healthcare costs. And Theranos was pitched to me as a solution we could offer our viewers. And before we would ever do something like that, I started looking into it, but I couldn't find anybody independent to tell me that these tests worked, that they they were what the company was essentially saying. And we we never reported it as such or, or gave it as, as a solution um, as a result of that. But it wasn't a giant red flag at the time. But what did start to become more curious to me was the rise of Elizabeth Holmes as I started to hear more and more of her. And she was on the cover of Forbes and Fortune and headlining all of these conferences when I connected the fact that there, there was a limited there was limited information around the company and then she's an overnight celebrity that added to my own curiosity. And when I started asking questions and looking for other answers, I kept coming up short. There, there were, were giant limitations on the kinds of access that she was giving to journalists and the type of information that was filtering out. So that was a for me, when I look back at that moment, when I started thinking about and pursuing this story, there was interest, but there wasn't the type of interest that there is now um, that she's been convicted. And even after the DOJ came out and, and um, indicted her with criminal charges. So it's a lesson, I think, as, as people think about their careers, you might not know where something is going, but if it is keeping you up at night and you just can't shake it, um, and I'm not the kind of person who is um, staying up at night thinking about every story under the sun as a journalist, you, ha you have to be, you know, there, there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there, don't get me wrong, um, but I, I think that it's a lesson to me to pursue those those types of stories. and and. To be honest, a lot of the early pursuit of this was almost as an extracurricular. Um, I would go to the West Coast. I, I, the chief business technology and economics correspondent, as you said, Rashmi for ABC News. So mm -hmm. I, I covered those topics for Good Morning America and World News Tonight and Nightline in 2020 and this week with George Stephanopoulos um, and our audio, our radio, our digital. So that's a full-time job. But it also does happen to take me to the West Coast quite a bit to cover the companies in Silicon Valley. And so what I would do early on, um, my producer and I would set up interviews when we were there and we would just make the interviews happen. We, we interviewed people at the Palo Alto Library, um, my sister for a time, um, who also went to the same high school that we all went to. Um, she... Um, she lived in Los Angeles and I used her house because I didn't have anywhere to send people to. And they came to her house, thanks to them for doing such a thing, to do interviews with me. Because at the time, 
there was a lot of other things going on in the world that that were also very pressing and urgent for the media and news. And um, I just kind of kept plugging away on the side. Well, you know, so I'll tell you, I'm sitting in Palo Alto right now. I, I go to Stanford University. Rashmi is at Emory in Georgia. Um, and Elizabeth Holmes has been a story. I'm actually sitting, I'm, I'm part of our school's newspaper staff. Uh-huh. Um, so we've been focusing a little bit on that too. And one thing I'd be curious to get your input on is with, you know, the sentencing just a few weeks ago and Bloomberg reported there was an appeal within the past few days. Uh-huh. Um, if you can talk to us a little bit about how that fits into the narrative you've been reporting on over the past decade. Well, it'll be interesting to see the appeals process because you have Elizabeth Holmes, Judge Davila, who was the presiding judge over this case and her sentencing, has told her to surrender April 27th, I believe. So, uh, and, and she was sentenced to over 11 years in prison as a result of being convicted on these four counts of criminal fraud. It'll be interesting to see if that appeals process can push out her surrender date. Um, it, it still is up in the air as of this recording, whether or not that will happen. She could very well go to prison and then the appeals process plays out as well um, while she's behind bars. That that happens. Um, I, I, I think a lot of people have sort of asked me, when you look at this story, what's the takeaway? Will there be less fraud? Will people think twice? And my answer to that is really that I think there's always going to be fraud in the world. You'd like to believe that this will, if somebody's thinking about not telling the truth, lying, that it will make them think twice. But uh, to me, I find that a little naive. What I do think the story really underscores is that being a whistleblower and pointing out truth, while it is potentially very painful in the early years as it was for Erica Chung and for Tyler Schultz and and in many ways probably has a lasting impact on their lives. It also has the possibility and the likelihood of bringing about justice and that telling the truth can be met with justice because in this story, what you have are these two people as, as people who have followed it who risked everything to tell the truth, but you now have two criminal convictions, Elizabeth Holmes, as well as Sonny Balwani, who was her co-conspirator in their trials were severed ultimately. But um, Sonny Balwani, by the way, will also be sentenced pretty soon, um, later this month, actually. Oh, wow. um, and, and the government is asking for the same thing as far as his sentence. They asked for 15 years for her and they're asking for 15 years for him. She got 11 years. Um, he very likely will have something in the similar ballpark because of the fact that the sentencing guidelines, given the size of the fraud, allow, as Judge Davila said, anywhere between about 11 years and 14 years for this case. Now that we've kind of gotten a sense of what you're most known for and kind of gotten your opinions on current events, we wanted to shift into anything but that and discuss other aspects of yourself and your life. So we kind of wanted to start with a random question. We're all from Minnesota, and we all know about the Mall of America. Ah, uh, yes. We actually knew that you used to fold clothes at the Mall of America. <laughs> Is that correct? At United Colors of Benetton, yes. Okay, well, lovely. We were just wondering if there were any, like, funny stories or experiences you have from that job. Wow. Okay, so... um, 
as a re- so I did fold clothes at United Colors of Benetton, and I it, it was amazing who came to the store at the Mall of America. I believe we had a princess. She was a foreign, obviously. We didn't don't have um, princesses, as far as I know, in the United <laughs> States. I don't remember where she was from, but I remember there was a big to do over the fact that there was a princess shopping in our store. And then the other part is that. Um, do you, is last chance summer dance still a thing? Is that still a KDWB? So KDWB, KDWB had these summer concerts and I, I'm pretty sure, look, this happened about 25 years ago. So some of it is a little hazy, but they had summer concert series. And I remember while I was working there, there were people from the summer concert series not KDWB, but some of the performing, the artists who were performing there. And they came into our store and they invited um, some of the employees to come to the concert. And we got to go backstage and hear the the big KDWB performance. So I remember that being a lot of fun um, as a uh, part of my summer job. But also um, my mom grew up, so I grew up in Minnesota, like you guys said, and my mom wrote for the Pioneer Press for years. And she covered retail and the economy. And she wrote a lot of the articles about the Mall of America before it was ever there. So as a little kid, I heard all these things about what was coming and the Mall of America and how we were going to be, you know, the Edmonton Mall. Do you guys know this? It's like a little fun part. So how how we, the Edmonton Mall had, uh, did they have a pool inside, a wave pool inside or a ski slope inside? Again. I didn't brush up on my uh, on my on all of it, but yes, those were fun times. Okay, well, it's so fun to kind of hear about your own experience, like the Mall of America. <laughs> I have so many childhood memories there when I was like growing up, so it's really cool to hear that. What's your favorite Rashmi childhood memory from the Mall of America? Ooh, I think the first time I went on the rock bottom plunge. Um, <laughs> It was like so scary. The ride was so terrifying to me. And then I went with my summer camp and my friends convinced me to go on it. And like, I was so scared to go in a circle upside down, but then I did it. And it was, it was so much fun. So was it called Camp Snoopy back then? Cause that's what it was called. I know it as Camp Snoopy. Cause that was the early days. Yes. Yes. It was Camp Snoopy. Oh, and here's another fun piece of Minnesota, um, uh, uh, Trivia. So at Camp Snoopy, I was at Camp Snoopy one night and I saw Prince walk through Camp Snoopy. And that I really? it, it was, yeah. And it was one of, I think I probably was leaving work. Um, I don't remember exactly the context, but it was nighttime and I was walking through Camp Snoopy. And I mean, I, I'm a, a huge, huge Prince fan. Rest in peace. Um, and it was such a moment to see him there. And obviously the Minnesota pride. He, he's, a, he's one of our big, big Minnesota peeps. So that was a no, good did moment. Did you say hi or did you just- <laughs> No, no, I was way too starstruck. Are you kidding me? <laughs> did he get on a ride? That's the real question. He did not get on a ride. He, um, he was there, I remember he was there with two other people on either side and there was just an, an air of complete celebrity and mystery surrounding him, so. Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah, now it's Nickelodeon Universe. I they know. They themed everything, right? Mm-hmm. So I still haven't been on a Nickelodeon Universe ride because <laughs> when I was younger, I was totally afraid of roller coasters, and I was up until this year, last year. Last year, yep. 
And then and you went skydiving. I went, exactly. I went <laughs> skydiving because I was less afraid of skydiving than roller coasters. Went skydiving, and then our dorm took a trip to Six Flags. And <laughs> I said, you know, if I could go skydiving, I could jump on a roller coaster. How did your parents feel about skydiving after all these years of not riding the roller coaster? You know, I gave them a courtesy call I, <laughs> to let them know in advance. Um, and they were like, okay, <laughs> call me when cool. you get off, you know, when you're done jumping. When you're on the ground. So that I know you're okay. Exactly. Yeah. I don't uh, know. If my, my daughter's three and a half right now. And if she called me out of the blue after never riding a roller coaster for years and told me she was skydiving, I don't know how I'd feel about that. I think I'd try and talk her out of it. Let's be honest. <laughs> that's fair enough. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, you know, we've got a, some more questions for you here. We'd love to know. You've said your motto is to find a side door. Mm. And we're just curious about where that motto comes from and if you have any thoughts on how to apply that to everyday life. Yeah, and I, I think that motto might have gotten a bad rap recently because I think there's some sort of like scandal where the the people involved in the scandal found a side door. Um, so so maybe don't take it, Rashmi. You know this, like the like the college scandal. Yes, yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. So I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not advocating here for doing not that kind of side door. Um, what I'm advocating more for is that when everybody else is rushing through the entrance. There are other paths to finding your way to your success. And it's not a matter of cutting corners. It's a matter of building up the things that are important to you, that make you special, um, that matter to you. And I think for me, as a journalist, a lot of it has been thinking about the areas that I care about. I, I care about investigations. I care about technology. I care about the economy. I care about business. And that, as an entry point for me, landed me in one of the arguably, arguably most important places for covering the financial crisis. So my background, I went to college at the University of Chicago. I studied economics and constitutional law as an undergraduate. I went into investment banking. I had graduated pretty deep in student debt, and I went into investment banking, both sort of for the mystery of it I had read uh, bonfire of the vanities and liars poker. And I wanted to look behind the curtain, but also because I had this student debt that needed to be paid off. And there was really no shot at doing that if I started out in journalism. And I, I knew that because my mom is a journalist. And, um, so I, I started in investment banking and that became for me a way to, and it, and it wasn't, it was more organic than, and then sort of reverse engineering it but it did become a reason that I found my foot in the door at, in journalism because um, when I made the decision, I wanted to quit investment banking. And it was something that my parents were very skeptical of because it was a job that was paying me well and, and it was a responsible job to have. But I, I just I felt a couple years in that it was not what I wanted. Um, and I, I needed to give myself I, I had to give myself the opportunity to pursue journalism. Um, but I started pitching uh, editors in Chicago at the time, business stories based on the trends that I was seeing. And so for me, that was my side door, as opposed to just applying through uh, a lot of the young journalist programs, which, by the way, I applied to a lot of those and didn't get into most of them, um, any of them, really. I, I ended up finding my way in through business and economics. Um, so that's the, what I say to people. And I think, you know, these last couple of years especially have 
clarified that if, if you were somebody who studied medicine or science or even math and you're in a newsroom over the last three years, think about how important that is. Um, and, and I don't think it's only applicable to the world of journalism, but as people, when people ask me what to do and how to get into journalism, have that other interest, if there are other interests, study it, know it, be an expert in it. And when it becomes the story, uh, as if you were covering medicine or, or, um, or had a background in math, raise your hand and let the newsroom know, let your um, colleagues, your bosses know what you can add, the value that you can add. And going kind of off of what you had just mentioned about that big decision to transition from investment banking to journalism, could you just elaborate a bit more on what went into that decision and like how did you kind of overcome a lot of like initial fears that you may have had at that time when you were making that jump? So this was now about 20 years ago, a little under 20 years ago, so, <laughs> um, which is hard to believe, but it happened then. And at the time, I was getting a lot of advice from people I trusted who were telling me not to do it. Um, I, I ask in, uh, when I end a lot of interviews, I ask people what the worst advice they ever received was. And I ask that question because it, it's, it's always a curious thing. And I think for me, some of the worst advice I got was to not leave investment banking. Um, and, and one of the things, by the way, about the worst advice is that generally speaking, it doesn't come from people who are trying to derail you. It doesn't come from people who don't know you. It comes from the people who are closest to you, who are trying to keep you from risk. And in my case, um, it came from that very group. It came from my parents. So I made this decision at the time that I, I needed to quit because I was working 100 hours a week and I was trying to set interviews to go out and interview for journalism jobs, but it, it just wasn't happening. Um, and it wasn't an easy decision. It was more of a path of thinking and, and asking myself, where do I want to be in five, 10 years? Um, in what way does my life right now add up to that? In what way am I pushing towards that? It also... I looked around and I saw people who were five or 10 years older than me in the profession of investment banking. And a lot of them had other aspirations, but they sort of didn't pursue them early enough. That was their feeling that had they maybe thought about it, pursued teaching or whatever it was um, earlier in their lives, then they could have been on that path. But it's some people will call it the golden handcuffs. That's how they felt at the time. And I made this decision that I needed to pursue it. And in my mind, I gave myself two years to figure it out. And as part of those two years, I, I knew that I was going to have to be aggressive, or at least I felt that I would have to be aggressive and that I would really actively seek out opportunities. But I didn't have a it wasn't like I had an Excel spreadsheet and the whole plan was written in stone. But what I did, and I'm really glad I did this, and I, I, I think you can do this whether you're trying to leave and go somewhere else or just as a practice in your career, I asked people out for coffee who were doing the job, editors, people who would be hiring managers. And the conversations began really with 
you know, asking them about their jobs and their work, but also I went to each of those meetings with story ideas and pitches. So I could add some value if there was an opportunity to do that. Um, and I think the one last thing, as I think back on that point in my life, and I also just think back to advice that I, I would give myself is to focus on the yeses and not the noes. Focus on the people who are willing to go out to coffee with you. Focus on the emails that are returned to you and don't spend as much energy on the no's because I, I, I'm, you know, everything has worked out for me and I knock on wood, I, I'm very grateful for the trajectory and, and the work that I've been able to do and the path that I'm on and the experiences that I've had. But I think I could get rid of a little bit of the anxiety that I felt along the way by, by focusing less on the, you know, the people who weren't interested and, and rather than trying to worry about that and why that was, instead focusing on those who were. Thank you so much for sharing and you know chatting about that because so many people reach that point at some point in their lives of having to make a big jump and you know, hearing how you did that despite some contradictory advice <laughs> is, you know. And it's not easy when the advice is coming from people you love and you trust. I mean, I'm... Uh, my parents have always provided me with great wisdom and so much of their advice is advice that I have followed. Um, so I appreciate that there's sort of this tug of war and an internal, you, you wrestle with it. Uh, there's one other thing though. So I didn't mean to cut you off, Nico, but there is one other piece to this that I think is really key. And that is, and I do fundamentally believe this, that if you are willing to work at it, that whichever decision you make can be the right decision because there's always something else. And well, I guess someone could argue with me, well, if you, you know, go to law school and you spend three years in law school or med school and you do that, then it's a little hard to turn back the clock. But I have friends, um, a dear friend of mine who studied history, she wasn't pre-med and now she's a psychiatrist because she realized a few years out of school that it wasn't the right path. So she went back and she did work and now she and, and went to uh, medical school as a result. So my point is just that if you're willing to work really hard, and that isn't without pain, but if you're willing to work incredibly hard and put in the time, you can pivot, you can make changes in your life. I think it's probably a lot easier to do that earlier when there are fewer uh, constraints on you, children, family, parents, aging parents. But um, it's not, if, you, if everything around you looks like a closed door, then you need to keep pivoting and look around that room because you're going to find something else if you're willing to work at it. Well, we're going to look around this room and find something totally different than <laughs> cool. what we're talking about here. Um, no, first, thank you for the advice. Like, truly, it's so great to hear. Um, but coming a little bit out of left field, mm. we read one of your favorite, you know, kind of chill out hobbies is to watch The Real Housewives. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Where have I printed such things? Where have they printed these, these falsehoods? Just kidding. <laughs> I grew up watching Real Housewives with my mom, I will admit. Oh so I'm, I'm somewhat familiar. Mm. So I'm wondering, on behalf of all the Real Housewives people in the mm. world, do you have a favorite? Um, whether it's like favorite city or favorite housewife? So, I, I, first of all, to name a favorite housewife is just no. I, I can't even go there. 
Um, Beverly Hills has been a, a big favorite. Salt Lake City, wow. I don't even know. Right. Uh, right. There's true fraud and scandal. Um, yeah, there. I, you know, I've watched a lot of them over the years. They are, they're a great release. That's what I'll say. Andy okay. Cohen's a genius. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, no, it's, it accidentally became a core part of my childhood. <laughs> what was your, what did you watch with your mom? I don't even know. See, we definitely, recently there's been more Salt Lake City going on just because what's happening yeah it's it's wild i i don't i don't understand i i the yeah. thing that the, I, I look i'm very glad that people do reality shows so that we can watch them um but i always am shocked that people do reality shows although i think reality tv um if we wanted to get deeply philosophical about it seems so much more now about people having a business idea and a very specific reason for doing it and they they see a really they see a return on that. And they it's its not just someone wandering into reality TV and thinking, oh, I guess I'll try this. Exactly. Okay. I'm a huge reality TV fan. I have not watched any of the Housewives. <laughs> Never got around to it. Really? But big reality TV fan, for sure. We were actually kind of wondering, just like talking about TV in general and your work with ABC, are there any, like, super funny things that have happened behind the scenes that like the average everyday viewer would not have expected to happen. I think it, it's very, a lot of what you see behind the scene, the, the beauty of, I guess, social media now is that you do get to see more behind the scenes. And I think one of the great things about ABC news and my experience with this team is that there is so much camaraderie behind the scenes. And whether it's Robin Roberts or Michael Strahan or George um, before the show, off camera, talking about our stories, um, there's, I just, and, and then with the larger teams too, the, the producers and the camera people and everybody on set, there's a real sense of teamwork and there's a lot of laughter and yet everybody understands the responsibility as well of what we're there to do every morning. And the fact that that's people are trusting us um, and they're giving our time to us. So uh, it's a lot. It can be a lot of fun. The makeup room, there's there's a hair and makeup room at, at ABC News, especially that gets pretty full um, for Good Morning America because there's a lot of us who are in for that show. There's a lot of music that goes on and there's sometimes dancing and joking. So we have a, it's a fun time. It can be a really fun time. It can, there's, there's pressure involved, certainly, but we have our fun too. You have to, right? Especially in the field of journalism, when there's always so much happening, uh, you got to find ways to lighten it up a little bit. Yeah, everybody, um, I just feel very lucky that we all get along as well as we do and that right. there is that sense of camaraderie. That makes things a lot easier, I'm sure. Yeah, well, it's, look, it's a privilege. It really is a privilege to do this job and it's a wonderful experience, but it can also be grueling like so many other jobs, but you're getting up really early and you're missing sometimes family situations. And um, I, it, it's less so this way now, but early on in my life, 
it was holidays and birthdays and sleep and things like that, that just, I didn't get to be a part of, um, as much because of the hours of the job. I like how you call out sleep as something you didn't get to be a part uh, of. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, and you know, it's funny because I'm not an advocate for not sleeping. Don't get me wrong here, but there's a lot of focus on the importance of sleep and the importance of balance in life. And I don't disagree with any of those points, but I do look back on especially the early years of my career and even my career now where there are times where if I'm being honest, I have to forego that because if I didn't, the things that I'm trying to achieve, I don't fundamentally believe I would. Again, I'm not advocating for an unhealthy lifestyle. I'm not advocating for burning yourself out all the time. But when I look back on the choices that I've made, I just don't see how I would be here talking to you about things like Elizabeth Holmes and that project if I hadn't made choices where there were going to be trade-offs and I wasn't going to get to always go to the birthday party and, and do the other things. And I think what's important is that you acknowledge that there are trade-offs while they're happening. And that if you're, because you don't want to wake up one day and think I made all these trade-offs, but I didn't recognize that I was making them. Um, right. At the same time, I've been very lucky to be surrounded by family and friends, and I have an incredible husband and my daughter and my parents and my sister um, and my extended family and friends where they have all helped in, in many ways on these realities and, and on these levels, but you have to think about it along the way. And, and there are different, I think there's also just, and you guys are, you're, you're just starting out, um, but, um, I think as long as you have those conversations with yourself and with the people who care about you along the way and acknowledge that you can change things if they need to be changed, that's a good, for me, that's helped a lot. Well, I can tell you that I can resonate as a journalist and college student at once with the lack of sleep. <laughs> uh, but yeah. we have one last question for you. What is a question you've always wanted to be asked? Oh. Everything you guys asked is a lot of fun. I have to give a thought to that. <laughs> okay. Well, it's not a question that um, that I always wish that I've been asked, but my, my daughter asks me every day what my favorite color is. And it's because her favorite color is orange. And if I ever say my favorite color is orange, she tells me it can't be my favorite color because it's her favorite color. <laughs> <laughs> So then what is your favorite color? Well, she tells me my favorite color is pink, even though I say all the colors of the rainbow are my favorite color. That's funny. Well, that's that's a good question to, I guess, always be asked. Yeah, it's so easy. <laughs> it's like, classic. yeah, it's classic. It's quite simple and it will never get you in trouble, or at least I hope it won't. Uh, what's your favorite vacation spot? Paris. Ooh. I love Paris. I was in Paris for the first time over the summer. It's a gorgeous city. It's beautiful. Do you speak French? Um, I studied there when I was in college, um, and um, it's it's my one of my favorite places in the world. Probably, if I had to say, it's my favorite place. That was anything but the dropout with Rebecca Jarvis. Thanks for listening. 
Sign up for your chance to join us for the after show at anythingbutpod.com. Talk soon. Anything But was created by Rashmi Ravindran and Nicholas Leepens with original music by Caleb Blue.